Well, for those of you who have been here or have been uh, watching this sermon series, we have been looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And recently we've been talking about how God is about a kingdom-building project. There's something that He's doing. He uses His people for His purposes. In these books of the Bible that we're looking at, He has brought His people out of exile and He's brought them back to their home, to their promised land. But He has them there with a mission. What they are to do is to represent Him before people who are lost, who do not know him. He's to represent them before a lost world. And that's the same mission that we have today. Now, in Nehemiah's day, it looked a little different. That's who we're talking about now is the man Nehemiah and the Israelites. And in his day, what that looked like is they were restoring the walls of the city of Jerusalem. By restoring the walls, they showed this was a city that God protected, that he showed his power in. Today, those of us who know Christ, we fulfilled this mission by making disciples, telling people who Jesus is and how they can follow him. But regardless of the mission, if we're going to follow what God has said, if we're going to pursue his purpose, be a part of building his kingdom, it's going to make a difference in our life. It's going to impact every area of our life. And yes, that also includes our money. Believe it or not, God cares about how you handle money. In fact, God's word has a whole lot to say about it. Today, though, we're just going to look at one particular chapter. As we continue through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 5. And I encourage you to look there as well. When we get to it, we will put the words on the screen, but if you'd like to use your own Bible or that blue one in the seat back in front of you, you'll find it on pages 471 and 472, Nehemiah chapter 5. Now this morning when we talk about how God cares about how we handle money, we're not going to talk about everything that the Bible says about money because there's a whole lot more that we can say. Instead, we're going to focus on really two major principles here in Nehemiah and some application points we can take from it. So we're talking about principles, things that God says, general uh, guidelines for his people. I am not up here giving each person individually specific financial advice. I am not qualified to do that, and that's not what I'm doing at this time. But we're talking about some general principles God's Word has about money. By learning about how Nehemiah handled money, we discover some things that we should be thinking about, some questions we should ask ourselves as we approach using money in our own life. God cares about how we get money, And he cares about how we use it as well. He expects us to seek a just income and to seek to restore others. And he challenges us to know what we need and to use the rest to bless others. So let's pray and then we'll learn from God's word. Lord, thank you for your word that doesn't leave us in the dark, but points us to how we should live for you. And God, thank you that you even speak to us on issues that impact us every day, like money. God, teach us that you care about how we handle money. You care about how we get it, and you care about how we use it. May you lead us to seek a just income, to seek to restore those in need. And God, may you convict us that we should know what we need and that we should use the rest to bless others for your glory. Thank you, God, that we see this use of money, this use of resources modeled especially 
in your son, Jesus Christ, who gave all to save us. May he be the one we ultimately go back to and focus on today. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. So the first general principle we're going to talk about in this chapter is that God cares about how you get money. God cares about how you get money. If you're using the outline that was in the bulletin, that's your first blank. God cares about how you get money. And since this is a longer passage, we're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to kind of break it up. So the first thing we're going to look at is that Nehemiah encounters a problem. He encounters a problem among God's people. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 of Nehemiah chapter 5. You can read along or follow the screen behind you. Nehemiah 5 verse 1 says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. And now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. The problem Nehemiah faces is that these people who he's supposed to be leading, they have a great outcry, a protest, because they are experiencing injustice. These are the families that are working, helping him to rebuild the wall. In many ways, he's dealing with a a BC kind of strike. People are saying, well, we don't want to work on the wall because we have these issues going on at home. They cry. They give an outcry on it. And this is language similar to other places we see in the Old Testament. When God's people were in slavery in Egypt, they did the same kind of thing. In Exodus 3, it says, now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. This is God speaking. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. He says to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. There's a pattern in the Old Testament of God's people saying something's not right. There's some injustice going on. They cry out to God. God hears them and he responds. That's a pattern we see in Exodus. And now we see it here in Nehemiah, but it's Nehemiah's job to respond. The problem is the families of his workers are starving and their Jewish brothers are using this situation to take advantage of them. Some people are are saying that they're having trouble providing for their families. While probably mostly men were working on the wall, women who lived outside of the cities were trying to gather grain for their families, but some of them had large families and there wasn't enough food to go around. And then as the adage goes, when it rains, it pours. Verse 3 tells us that there's also a famine going on now. Not only are many of the men working and the women are struggling to provide, but now there's a famine. Food is scarce and food prices are going up. And so many of these people are forced to mortgage or give up their property in order to buy food for their families. Beyond that, verse 4 tells us some are going into debt trying to pay their taxes. Remember, at this time, God's people are under the Persian 
empire. They're not their own country or nation. They have to pay taxes to this king who lives far away. And we've talked a bit about the Persians uh, as we've studied through these books. They were very generous in terms of religious freedom. They let the Jews come back to their homeland, rebuild a temple. But they were still a nation ruling over them. And while the Persians were known for being generous in terms of religion, they were also known in history for having very high taxes. And so the people are struggling. They're committed to paying them. They're committed to being good citizens, but they're struggling to make ends meet. But the worst problem of all is in verse 5. Because even though all of the Jews, all the people of Israel had equal worth, those who were more wealthy were forcing those who were poor into slavery. And they were powerless to do anything about it. As they say, they're even unable to buy back their daughters who they've sent into slavery. They really had to resort to kind of renting out their children to serve others, except it was a bit stronger than that because it was slavery. They sold them to others. And this is something that uh, we don't talk about today. We don't like thinking about slavery today. But and in this time, in this period of the world, selling yourself in order to pay off a debt, it was something you could do. But it seems that among God's people here, some were taking advantage of this desperate situation. They were using that desperation to get more for themselves. They were either giving less money to those who were selling themselves into slavery or they were not treating them well. They were treated poorly. They weren't getting their fair, just, and honest wage. And God's law had spoken about this. Back in the early books of the Bible, in Leviticus 25, God had given a law for his people. He said, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, then you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. The law says to take no interest from him, no interest, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. But that's what was happening here. They were charging extremely high interest rates in terms of how they were getting what money they would give. And they were making money off of the food that they would give to those in need. And this was a big problem. His workers are saying, we are unable to provide for our families. This threatens their project they're doing. They're trying to build this wall to represent God's kingdom is here in the land. That's what they're trying to do. But if people aren't able to eat, that's going to create problems. And this opposition that Nehemiah is dealing with, it's happening inside God's people. There's not somebody from the outside causing this problem. It's among the people of Israel this is happening. And in many ways, that makes it worse than an outside enemy. So Nehemiah has to respond to this. And let's look at how he responds in verses 6 through 9. In verse 6, this is Nehemiah talking. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers, that they may then be sold back to us. 
They were silent. They could not find a word to say. In verse 9, so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? This situation angers Nehemiah. Those who are rich are getting richer off of those who are poorer, and this upsets him. This is an understandable reaction to injustice in the world. He's seen God's people reject his law, and it angers him. But instead of reacting right away, he took a pause. I I like that phrase in verse 7. He took counsel with himself before responding. He pondered, he thought about the best course of action before he spoke. This is a wise policy for followers of God. The writer James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Friends, the truth is there's a lot of injustice in the world. There are a lot of things wrong about the world. But we need to think very carefully about how we respond. Anger is an appropriate response when we see something wrong, but we need to think and pray and ask God, how should we respond wisely to this situation? And that's what Nehemiah does. He still takes strong action, but he takes a pause before he does that. His strong action is he accuses the nobles and the officials of oppressing their own people. Like the church is supposed to be today, they were supposed to be a community before God. But instead, some members of that community were trying to go out for themselves, get more money for themselves. And Nehemiah says, this is wrong. He brings formal charges against them. He contends with them in a public court, a great assembly and large gathering of the people. And he reminds them that this type of oppression brings God's judgment upon his people. It's part of the reason why they went into exile in the first place. Before the exile, the prophet Isaiah said, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And God looked in them for justice. But behold, he found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold. And there's that word that we had. There was an outcry. People were calling out, this is wrong. We are being oppressed. We're being robbed by others. And God brought his judgment on his people for doing that in the past. In addition, he points out that they're taking interest from fellow Israelites, and that was explicitly forbidden in God's law. Some of the older translations have usury is what they call it. We already read from Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy is even more clear. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent interest. That's what he says among God's people. They're not supposed to take advantage of each other in that way. So Nehemiah speaks to them. He works to convict the leaders that they are neglecting their people. He explains to them their situation. Jews are being redeemed, bought out of exile. They're coming back to the promised land only to be immediately sold back into slavery to someone else. Nehemiah is telling them what you are doing Enforcing them into slavery is just as bad as the people who sent us into exile. They're still enslaved. They still aren't able to live their own lives, make decisions for themselves. You're doing the same thing the people who conquered us did. 
And his argument is this is not what God desires for his people. This happened before God removed them from the promised land. Back in the book of Ezekiel, we're, we're told that in, uh, among God's people, they take bribes to shed blood. You take interest and profit. You make gain of your neighbors by extortion. And God says, but me, you have forgotten, declares the Lord God. They're going right back to their old ways, their old ways that brought God's judgment on them. And the leaders recognize this. The end of verse 8 says they were silent. They could not find a word to say. The guilty leaders cannot respond to his charge. They have kind of this guilty silence as a response. So Nehemiah continues in verse 9. He says, this is not good. It is not right. We should be walking, living in fear and obedience to God, doing what he says. The lives of God's people should be about their God, not about their own financial interest. If they did not follow God, they would be no different from any of the other nations around them. And the whole purpose of them building the wall was to show that they were different, that God was with them. But if they act just the same way, there's no difference. They needed to prevent and avoid the taunts, the mocking, the slander of those who did not know God because they are supposed to be a different, a unique people that have a unique relationship with their Lord. And friends, how we handle money shows the world what we believe about God. If we misuse money or if we take money from someone else, the world notices this. The world mocks those who do that because everyone else does that. If you hear about a Christian leader in the news, more often than not, it's either because of sexual sin or because a leader was caught ripping people off or mishandling money. And that brings shame on the name of Christ. Now, it's lest we say, well, yeah, those people did wrong. They're, they're bad. Shame on them. We have no room for pride because even amongst ourselves, we have our own much smaller, sure, than a big-name person, but we have our own circles of influence. And if we mismanage our money and resources, we represent Christ poorly to those who we interact with. Nehemiah is pointing out and pointing to us as well how we live impacts how people see God. But he has a solution. And let's look at that solution in verses 10 through 13. Nehemiah says, Moreover, I and my brothers, my servants, we are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses. And return the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. 
Nehemiah had been trying to set a good example for the people. He had been lending money and grain. The implication is he was doing it without charging interest, but he knew that he needed to do more. Just him setting a good example was not enough. And he knows God has a heart for those who are suffering. He probably knew what the prophet Isaiah said in verses 6 and 7. Isaiah, well, God speaking through him said, is this not the fast that I choose, the action for God that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, your own brother in the faith. Nehemiah knows this is God's heart and desire. So even though he's doing the right thing, he challenges the others. He asks them to abandon, do without this collecting of interest from their fellow Jews. My John's abbreviated version of the end of verse 10 is stop it. Just stop it. He faced the problem head on. He used his position, his influence, to get justice for his brothers and sisters. And he had specifics of what they needed to do. He tells the leaders not only to return and give back the the things that they had, but also to give back the interest that they were charged, to forgive their debts. They were to restore, give back any land that they had and the percentage they got from interest. This crisis is so serious that this desperate step is needed. He's saying, we need to finish this wall. This is God's purpose. So give these people back what they need to live and serve him. And the leaders agree to this. They say, yes, we will restore. We will give back what we have taken, where we will not require or demand anything else. And Nehemiah is also wise. And so it seems that he doubts their resolve a little bit since they've been doing this again and again. So he makes them swear an oath that they'll actually do this. So they'll be accountable to God and accountable before the community. They will serve God in this way. And then he goes one step further in verse 13. He pronounces a curse on those who do not keep this promise. He says about shaking out of the fold of his garment. It's a biblical expression of rejection. May God shake out the one who oppresses others. May God shake this person away from their house and possessions and make that person empty if they take advantage of someone else. And the crowd agrees. They say, amen, may it be so, and praise God. And they have good reason for praising God because they then turn around and do this. They restore what they have taken. Now we read all that and we think, that sounds really far from us. I mean, this was thousands of years ago, Pastor John. So what? What does that have to do with us? What does that have to say about how we are getting money? What can we learn from this? Well, I think there's at least two points of application that we can draw from this passage and God's care for how we get money. The first application is that we should seek a just or honorable income. Not taking advantage of someone to to get what we have, but a just and honorable way of getting what we need. The truth we should remember is that everything we have comes from the Lord. He is the one who is in control. In the book of 1 Samuel, we read, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Whether someone's rich or poor, that is in God's control, his will, his actions. We can't change that, so we should not take advantage of those who are vulnerable, since God is the one in control. 
The book of Proverbs speaks about this a lot. In Proverbs 11.1, 1, it says a false balance using uh, weights that aren't quite right so that you get more money. That's an abomination to the Lord. But a just weight, that is his delight. Or in chapter 14, he says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, insults God. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. Friends, there are careers that you can find that are based off of taking advantage of other people. And so we should think carefully about how we earn our living. There's careers that are based off selling people something, manipulating people into doing things, and we should not be taking from others. Instead, as we are able, we should be earning our own just living. In the book of 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes about this. He says, We hear there are some among you who walk in idleness. You're not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, to earn their own living. We were made to work. It honors God when we do that. And so we should work in a just way for what we need and not mistreat others. So that's for ourselves what we should do, but it doesn't stop there. It's not only that we're not taking from the needy, but God's people go one step further. They not only seek a just income, they seek to restore. They seek to restore those who are broken, who are robbed and oppressed. That's what Nehemiah does. He took the extra steps to end the exploitation of these workers in the community. He seeks to restore those who are hurting. Both of these go together, how we live for God and use money and what we do for someone else. Look at the prophet Ezekiel and see if you can see this balance in this passage. It says, if a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not oppress anyone, okay, but restores to the debtor his pledge, if he commits no robbery and gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, if he does not lend at interest or take a profit or withhold his hand from injustice, and executes true justice between man and man, then that man is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. You notice the balance in these actions. It's what they do, good things that they should do, manage things well, but it's also seeking to care for others. Now, if we haven't been doing that, the good news is there's always an opportunity to live for God in that way and always a good opportunity to do what is right. Later in the book of Ezekiel, he uses some of the very same language and says, if someone who was wicked then restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, then he shall surely live, he shall not die. Now, will we do this perfectly? No. And I'm not up here recommending specific things that every single person in the government should do. I'm not... not doing that at all. I'm saying it's a goal to strive for because we seek to model our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we know that ultimate restoration is not something we can achieve, that it comes from the Lord. 1 Peter 5 says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God uses his resources to restore 
us to himself through Jesus Christ. God saw what he had and Jesus came to give us the same mission. He came, he lived for us. He lived perfectly, not falling into sin, so that he could die, pay the penalty that we owe, took that away from us and took it on himself so that we can be restored to God. That teaches us a role that we can have for others in seeking to restore others. Now, we're not Christ. We can't restore people to God, but we can show his love to others. So this story is not only about how we get money, but it's also a story about how we use it. And that's the the second part we see in the chapter. God cares about how you use money. He cares about how you get it, but he also cares about how you use it, how you use it. So let's read verses 14 through 19, the last few of this passage. Verse 14 says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the Persian king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Verse 17. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah is modeling how God should care about how we use our money. He had been appointed governor over the land of Judah. He was there for 12 years. And our calendar, that would have been 445 to 433 BC, around that. And in his position, he consistently showed servant leadership. He thought of other people first. And he's consistently generous with what he has. He didn't have to do this. He was appointed by the Persian king. He was a Persian governor. And as that, he had a right to lay on the people extra taxes for his own personal use. That's what those who were before him did. They put heavy burdens on the people. Even their servants and assistants participated in this abuse. But Nehemiah says that he did not do that. And the reason he gives is because he feared, he revered, he worshiped God. Scholar Mervyn Brenneman says, the depth of one's reverence for God will determine one's decisions. Nehemiah deeply revered and worshiped God, and so that led him to not act like the others who were around. He rejected what came before. He said, we're going to stop that. I know every other governor has done that, but I'm not going to do that. And instead, he did what God wanted. He respects God. God's law, that all of God's people are brothers and worthy of respect. 
And meanwhile, verse 16 says, while he's not taking his paycheck, he is persevering in rebuilding the wall. He's forgoing any other financial advantages he could have gotten. He believes in God's purposes. He does not want to line his own pockets. He applies himself to God's work. This is what God wants us to do. It's not my role to get rich for myself. He's devoted to what the Lord is doing, not to his own purpose. He is focused on God's kingdom building project. God wants our city to stand for him. That's my focus. And so neither he nor the people who worked for him took land from the people. They were focused on the task. And that's not the only thing he was doing. Verses 17 and 18 tell us that he was preparing food for his guest from his own expense. This is official business for the Persian Empire. But he did this because he didn't want to be a burden on the people by taking this extra provision and allowance. This was part of his job from Persia. He had to entertain guests who came to his area. He had to entertain them, provide food for them. It's like when foreign dignitaries visit the United States. They often go to the White House. They have a fancy dinner there. It's the same kind of thing. Nehemiah had to entertain those who came, and he was supposed to get that money from the people. But he knows that they are struggling and suffering, so he decides not to do that. Even though if we add this up, it seems every day there were at least 150 people there, if not more. He's feeding thousands of people a month. But he does not insist on getting the money that legally belonged to him. Legally, the people were supposed to give him that, but he said, they are suffering so much, I'm not going to take that. He was focused on his people. He knew that the money and the work demands that they had were heavy. They were working hard at the wall, and he did not want to live in comfort while they were struggling and in need. And with these actions, Nehemiah offers a prayer to God in that last verse, verse 19. He regularly asks God to remember what is happening. And he knows that any good or favor that he experiences ultimately comes from the Lord. God's going to show good or favor to him, it has to come through God, not because of what he's doing. In Exodus 33, the Lord says to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. That's what Nehemiah is asking. He says, God, know me, know my heart, and the decisions I'm trying to make to live for you. Hold me accountable, God, that what I'm doing honors you and not myself. This is the prayer of one who serves God. He's saying, God, remember what I have done for your children. Use that for your glory. This should be the prayer of any pastor, any spiritual leader saying, I've tried to serve others, God, for your glory. I pray that you will remember and use it. He's trusting God to bring true justice and relying on God with sincere faith. In all this, he's depending on God and not his money. So we see how Nehemiah used his money, but what does that mean for us? How should we use the things that we have? Well, again, there's probably two application points that we can draw. The one is not explicitly said here, but it's necessary to set up what Nehemiah does, and that's know what you need. Know what you need. Live for God. Provide for yourself and your family. Know what you need. Because God gives us what we need. Nehemiah was able to provide for all the people who came from his own resources. He didn't have to resort to getting money from extra areas. He had what he needed, and he knew what he needed. 
How we do that? Well, simple things like having a budget and knowing how much we need to live. And then once we know that, we have to is not increasing our standard of living, what we need. First Timothy 6 speaks a lot about uh, money and how we live and how we represent God. And look at this contrast it sets up in this passage. It says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, some of those phrases we're familiar with, but I want to point out the contrast that he sets here. He puts two roads here. He says, road one is that you are content with food and clothing. Road two, the other way to live, is to desire to be rich. I think that that's a convicting passage, convicting setup there, because I'm often not just content with food and clothing. And Paul's saying, well, then you're desiring to be rich and you're in a dangerous place. But if we know what we need, we know we're able to provide that food and clothing, then the second application point is we can use the rest to bless others. We can use the rest to bless others. Think about where Nehemiah was. He was appointed governor over this land. He had a right to collect extra taxes. He could have become the richest man in Jerusalem. He could have pulled all the money that the government said he could. He could have assembled that all together. He could have retired better than anyone else in the city. But instead, he didn't do that. Instead, he chose to serve others. And as his responsibility increased, as his privileged position went up, he served more. His service increased. And why did he do this? Because I think he knew the truth. I mean, he prays it in verse 19. He knew that his life and that our lives are not about making money. Our lives are about serving God. Our goal in life is not to be the richest person or have the biggest mansion. Our goal in life is to hear this at the end. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The closer we get to God, the more we'll want to serve him and the more we'll want to serve others. And if we don't have that growing heart to serve others, then that shows us we have a problem in our heart and how we're living for God. Again, in the book of James, we're told that if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but without giving them the things that are needed for the body, then what good is that? So these are some principles, but what does that look like in our life? How are we supposed to think about this? What are the steps to take? Now, again, I can't speak to every single person's situation, but I think there's some questions we can ask ourselves. As I was reading this passage, it reminded me of a book I read years ago, David Platt's book, Radical. David Platt's a pastor, and he wrote a book about how our life should look radically different from the life of other people in the culture around us. And he spoke about this on money. 
And the illustration that stuck in my mind for years was he talked about the preacher John Wesley, who's known for starting the Methodist church. Now, Wesley was in a unique situation. He didn't have a family, but Wesley sat down at one point and realized, you know, I can live on a certain amount of money. Roughly to today's money, it's very rough. He figured that just for himself, he could provide for himself with around $25,000 a year, something like that. That wasn't the money he had then. I'm trying to relate it to today. It's not exact, but roughly that amount. He figured, I can live on that. And early on, he probably had to. But as his income increased, he kept that same standard of living. He still lived on that $25,000. Eventually, he got to the point where he was almost making what today would be about $200,000 a year. But he just lived on that twenty-five, and he gave away or used in other ways to encourage others about what would today be 175000 Now again, we're all in different places, in different situations, and how that works out in our life will look different. Some of us have large families to provide for, loved ones to care for. We're in different situations in life. But I still think it's worth asking ourselves this question that Pastor Platt asked. He said, what if you and I decided that having a $50,000 salary doesn't necessitate living a $50,000 lifestyle? What if you and I had simple caps on our lifestyles and were free to give the rest of our resources away for the glory of Christ in the neediest parts of the world? That's the opposite from the way most of us live. Most of us are led to live the way our culture lives. Our culture says the more money you have, the better life that you can have. But a challenge we could ask ourselves is, what if I say this is what I need and the rest I can use? Now, I'm not saying it's morally wrong to ever take a vacation. I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to get something for yourself. All I'm saying is we need to think intentionally about how we are using the money, the resources that God has given us. How are we using what God has provided for ourselves or for his purposes? We're going to talk about this a little more this fall. On Wednesday evenings in the fall and starting in September, we're going to have a class on on stewardship, how we manage money and other things that God has given us. So I'm looking forward to that. I encourage you to keep your eyes and ears open for that, about how we can use what God has given us. The truth is, if you're here in this room, and probably most of people watching online, you're probably living in America. And if you live in America, you are living in the richest country in the world, and you are one of the richest people in the world. And that means when the Bible talks about rich people, regardless of where you are on the American scale, compared to the rest of the world, God is talking to you. And this was the verse we read earlier today, right before our offering. We read, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud and do not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of the riches they have, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It said they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share because they do that. They'll be storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's God's instruction for us, to be rich in good works, to be generous 
with what we have. To know what we need, not, not shirk our responsibilities, but then be able to use what's left to serve others. And once again, this isn't something that we're just making up out of the blue. We're doing the same thing that God did for us. God used everything at his disposal to provide a way to save us. Consider in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 8. It says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God saw where we were. God had everything that he needed, but he said, you know what? I can help these people by sending my son. And even though they're my enemies and they're rejecting me and doing the opposite of what I say, I will show my love and grace to them. Yes, money is important and God cares about it. But knowing him is more important. You can give your 100% of your income away, but if you do not know Christ, then that won't matter in the end. So yes, we should model Christ in giving to others, but I pray that you know him. And if you don't know him, if you don't know, haven't turned away from your sin and embraced his work on your behalf, then I pray that you'll reach out to me, have a conversation with me or with someone and say, I, I want to know that how I can know God. Read his word more and see the response he calls for, repenting, turning away from sin and believing in him. He has done the work. He has provided the way for you to know him. Do you? And if we know him, we live for him and praise him because he is worthy.